Hey everybody, welcome to our second episode of Off the Couch, where we take a closer look at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I am also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything that we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by the CBG Trails app, which is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley. So download the app today and start exploring. Yesterday, my Off the Couch co-host, Brendan Leonard, and I had a remarkable conversation with a remarkable person, Sanjay Rawal, and we urge every runner and every non-runner to listen to it. Sanjay has made a number of remarkable films, and he spoke with Brendan and me about how running can be far more than just a fitness routine or a competitive outlet. It can be transformative and, according to Sanjay, can very literally make us better people. An accomplished runner himself, Sanjay shares how burning out on competitive running, plus a fraught political climate, plus a desire for self-discovery, led him to veer off his straight-A med school path that he was on at Cal Berkeley and instead go explore running as a form of meditation under the guidance of the spiritual leader, Sri Chinmoy. We then talk about Sanjay's most recent film called 3100 Run and Become, which centers on the longest certified race in the world, the Self-Transcendence 3100. Yes, that's right, this is a 3,100 mile long race that takes place in, of all places, Queens, New York, on a sidewalk that surrounds a high school. So we are talking about a 3,100 mile race that takes place on a closed loop course that's about half a mile long. So Sanjay's film goes into why in the world someone would create an event like this, and then why in the world would anyone actually participate in an event like this? Who are these people and what are they doing? The film then uses the Self-Transcendence 3100 race as a launching point to examine the connection between running and spiritualism in a number of diverse traditions and communities around the world, including the Navajo Nation of Arizona, the San Bushmen of Botswana, Africa, and a Buddhist monastic community in Japan where the practitioners aren't exactly runners per se, but their long-distance rituals almost defy comprehension. I've had the good fortune to have had a lot of wonderful conversations with a lot of very smart and sincere people over the course of my life, but I have to say that this conversation with Sanjay and Brendan was one of the best I've ever had. And if you're wondering how one of the best conversations I've ever had got started, well, it got started by talking about pizza and cheesecake. We hope you enjoy. Sanjay, thanks so much for being on the show. We're excited to have you. Well, I'm super excited. Been a fan of Blister of You, obviously been a fan of Brendan, your work, and have your books. And it's it's great to be able to shoot the breeze for a little while. Sanjay, there is a story, I understand, about how you and Brendan first met. And would you mind sharing that with us? I, I, I made a film in 2014 on farm worker rights uh, called Food Chains. And it was like uh, in my opinion, like a remarkable story of a tiny group of farm workers in Southern Florida that really battled the biggest agricultural conglomerates in the world, like Walmart and one. And through that, I, I, I worked with a, an outdoor photographer named Forrest Woodward. Um, last October, I believe, Forrest texted me and said, hey, I'm going to be back in New York and I'm with my friend Brendan and we want to run a pizza marathon. <laughs> and I didn't know if that meant like eating pizza for like five hours or if it was actually a run. <laughs> so, but either way, I was, I was down. I was down. It sounded great either way. And it turns out it was both. Oh, boy. Can you say more? How did this go? Well, th- there was a bit of disagreement from the start. And, <laughs> and you know, we, we, we started running in Brooklyn from their Airbnb and, uh, you know, within a mile, I mean, I was hungry, like, because these guys started the run like three hours later than we were supposed to. I was hungry. And the first place we came across, you know, had some, you know, was serving something. And I'll tell you what that thing was, but 
serving something that had crust and cheese and red sauce. And I made the guy stop and, you know, and it was in a triangle, you know, so like, to me, it's like, forget it. Like, let, let's just grab it. It's going to be pizza in some definition or not. I mean, it was cheesecake with like raspberry sauce, but it was again, cheese and crust and like red sauce. I was starving. And like Brendan kind of, I, I think looked at me like, and looked at Forrest and was like, what the hell is this guy doing here? He's like ruining everything for me. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is not true. My, I immediately, we were running by, it's Junior's Cheesecake, which is pretty famous, yeah. right? And I've had it before and it's wonderful. And, and I think we jokingly said, maybe we should stop and get some cheesecake. And Sanjay said, yeah, and just stopped. And I thought, oh, I'm really going to like this guy. <laughs> Starts out the pizza marathon with a slice of cheesecake. <laughs> Oh my God. Did you guys make 26.2? Pr- pretty much. I mean, we, we all had, we all had different measurements on our own GPS devices, but like we averaged them and it was pretty much 26.2, but oh my God, it was like, it's, it started off as like the best of times and ended up as the worst of times. Cause <laughs> what, well, the rule was like to eat a slice of pizza every five miles. And the first couple were awesome, but by the end, I mean, I don't know if anybody has, has done like really specific cleanses where they have to just eat one thing or drink one thing like a green juice or take a lot of olive oil for a week. And after that week, you never want to like, like the smell of whatever that healthy thing was like throws you off for like months. I, I swear to God, I, I couldn't eat pizza for months after that. <laughs> oh, I was fine. <laughs> Well, you're you're a, you're more of a man than me. You know, <laughs> people by the end, I mean, they they were giving me crap because, like, my last, my second, my penultimate slice at like mile twenty, it's New York, and 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 the slice is whatever they've got at the pizzeria, and so I ordered like a a, a slice that didn't have any cheese on it, but it wasn't like I didn't crap out and say like I'm getting some vegan slice because it wasn't a kind of hoity-toity pizza place. But it was just like sauce on crust. And that was the only way I was going to make it. And there was some debate about whether that would count. And, you know, I still feel a little sore about that. The other thing that really drove me crazy was like I, the, the movie 3100 Run and Become came out last fall. And I was so good on Instagram and I posted like every day what I thought were super inspiring things. And when I posted the totally unrelated like pizza marathon that happened kind of in the middle of the release, it was like my most viewed post in 2018. <laughs> and so, you know, I just, I just realized it's like I, I wasted two years of my life. You've basically just described my entire creative career. Um, <laughs> just FYI. Oh, my goodness. Well, I kind of want to hear your first experiences with running, Sanjay, because you ran competitively in high school, and I think it could show us the arc of your relationship uh, with it throughout your life. I, I, I'm, I'm effectively first generation, um, and a first generation immigrant. I mean, I came here when I was like one years old. My parents were like literally fresh off the boat, um, and I come from India, and there is no modern running culture or running history there, uh, so. I didn't even know running was a thing. In high school, I you know, I was five foot one as a, a sophomore and maybe a hundred and five pounds. I was not gonna go the Jonathan Ellsworth like wide receiver <laughs> path. And I, I at the same time I played a lot of soccer. And so a friend of mine said, like, let's join cross country. And I remember the first meet. It was like the first three hundred yards were, you know, on grass and then we curbed into the woods. And everybody sprinted the first 300 yards. And so I did. But as soon as we went into the woods, I was just like, God, nobody can see me. I'm just going to like walk for a while. <laughs> and I, I came across the finish line like sprinting because that was back in the open. And my coach was just like, looked at me with such disappointment. But I literally did not know how to run. But, you know, by, by the end of that year, like I, I was, you know, one of the best milers in, you know, at least in, in the East Bay and by the time I got to my senior year, I was, you know, in the top eight or so in, uh, in terms of times in the 800 meters in California, you know, California's got 30 million people. So 
it was it was it was good ranking um but that said it's like my parents were like when you go to college you're going to be setting yourself up for med school and that's it so you're going to be studying 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 i didn't i didn't know that running could actually be a lifelong thing i didn't really know that it was that there was a there was an angle to running besides like going to the olympics cuz that was what I w- the, the track I was on and folks I'd run against that beat me handily by like four or five seconds in the mile, which, you know, is a lot. Um, like Richie Boulay, you know, they ended up going to the Olympics running in Europe. And I, I thought like, if you didn't show that kind of medal in high school, there was no way you'd ever get there. It seemed, it seemed every other sport like soccer, football, basketball, there are no late bloomers. Like you don't find that sport when you're in college. You know, you're you're recruited out of high school and that's it. So I, I ran a little bit when I started college at Cal, but there was no way I was going to be able to work it in. And again, it's like for me, running was just about competition. That's all I thought it was. Just like, you know, when you're, when you're playing like at like the high level in, in, in football, even if it's high school, you know, you're out there to win. And if you're an 0 and 12 team, likely, you know, you're not going to really enjoy the sport. You're not going to really progress. And that's how it was for me in track. You know, as, as soon as I realized like I was going to be second place at best, you know, third place at best, it was more like, why am I going to kill myself to do this? Where do you think that, uh, that sort of competitive idea came from for you? Cause it sounds like your parents weren't you know, those type of parents who were saying you're going to be the best miler in California or, or else, you know, they were didn't sound like they were pressuring you to run at all. I, I, I just did, I just did well. It's like may, maybe it was gr- growing up in, in Boulder my first five years. I mean, I didn't run much. I was running 17 miles a week and people I was competing against in the mile were in 60, 70, 80 miles. That said, it's like, and I don't, I don't really want to knock them, but like high school coaches in general, uh, especially running coaches, don't have the same kind of like skill set that coaches in other sports might have. They, they might have been recreational runners themselves or had a kid that was exceptionally talented and they might be the only person that's willing to be a stupid cross country or like distance running coach for a track team. There's not a lot of glory on that side. And so I look at the failure of coaching. And if my coach had really said like, hey, you're only running 20 miles or less a week. Like, you know, keep this up. Like, even if you don't want to run competitively in college, like there is a future. And at the same time, like there was no such thing as a marathon for high schoolers or even like a half marathon. And I found later, like those are the distances I enjoyed a lot more than these things that were like the mile that was and the two mile that are effectively you're running pretty much all out from the gun um like you're on the edge the whole time and there's no sense of of enjoyment for me there whereas the longer distances you know ended up like i I mean i ended up really enjoying running when i got to those longer distances so when did that sort of are there turning points or were you kind of just get a, get away from running just a little bit in college and then back and forth the rest of your life? Well, so the, the absolutely crazy thing is I, I frankly, I moved to New York to study with an Indian spiritual teacher, Sri Chinmoy, who was part of the running boom in the seventies in New York city. I mean, his path was as, as, as strict as they come in terms of meditation and prayer and discipline, but he, felt that running wasn't just a metaphor for an active spiritual outlook, but it could actually strengthen, you know, and, and deepen your power of meditation. And in the 70s, as in, in, in the 1970s, he was, you know, nearly 50 years old and, you know, got into marathon running and ended up in the 80s co-sponsoring some of the earliest multi-day races with Fred LeBeau, the, the president, then president of, of the New York Roadrunners Club. And so I kind of unknowingly moved into a running hotbed. And I moved to New York in, in the summer of, or in the winter of 1997, the, the self-transcendence 3,100 mile race, the world's longest officially certified race, 
began a half a mile away from where I lived in the summer of 1997. I was 22 years old. And like my only experience in running was the longest distances I'd ever run were, were 5K as a race. So the idea of 3,100 miles, which is 5,000, almost exactly 5,000 kilometers, it was, it was, I had no concept of it. And so even though I kind of moved really into this, this, this group that was at the forefront of multi-day and, and ultra, ultra distance running, I didn't really get, and I ran marathons here and there, but I didn't really start enjoying running again until I started making the movie 3100 Run and Become. That's, that's when it's like everything I'd heard from friends who were longtime runners and what I'd read in terms of Sri Chinmoy's attitude towards running, it all gelled. I mean, even though I, I did have a good mile time, even in my early 30s, I was running better in my early 30s than I did in high school. But the the idea of getting fulfillment from running didn't happen until I spent time with the Navajo and the Bushmen. Wow. So that is like 20 years. Yeah. It's, it's like that. That's that, that's burnout. It's like I was so burned out from high school and a little bit in college that my whole frame of reference was jaded. It was like, it was like, you know, eating bad fast food and then never, ever wanting to go to that particular restaurant again. And just it, even if you're eating it, you always had this, this like fear of something disastrous happening. But it sounds like you were still running that whole time too. So you're still eating at that restaurant, just going, eh, like yeah, getting, getting nutrients. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like the, the idea before a race was never like, what can I do to like really get a really enjoy myself in this race? It was always like every single race I did, and I did races almost every weekend. You know, it was just like, oh my god, like I'm only going to be happy when this when this race is over. <laughs> so what's what's driving you to sign up for these at that time? You know, I it, 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 that's a that's an interesting question. Like part of me, I love the training. Uh, I I really I really love just going out, and I love the rigor. I love the discipline. I love doing the workouts and hitting the splits. But I never developed a long term view of running. I, I now I now I tell myself when I train when I run, like I want to do this for the rest of my life. I had always looked at running season to season because um, from the, any competitive sport, like there's an annual schedule. And so I was always training for one goal at the end of the year, whether it was um, a marathon or, or a half marathon. And that was it. It, it. it wasn't really till I kind of accidentally ran a six day race in 2015 that I finally realized like, God, this is why people run. I mean, I, I that that I, I I was on that course. It was you know six day races are usually held around a one mile loop, and I was on that course for six bloody days. That's a hundred and forty four hours, and the first just you know the the first like three or four days were physically and mentally agonizing, but after my mind finally realized like it's got no choice. Like it's not going to drag me off the course. Everything changed. And even in my attitude towards running after that, when I finally got the mindset that this particular workout doesn't matter, next weekend's race doesn't matter. Like what matters is that I enjoy everything so that I can keep running till I'm a hundred years old. Wow. So even after studying under Sri Chinmoy, where with the talk of running as meditation, you were not you were not meditating while running like it wasn't it didn't it didn't do that for you until 2015 that's accurate it's like it's it's it was it was a, a relationship that had some toxicity to it hmm. so i just am really curious i'd love to back things up a bit what led to the moment when you said i'm moving to new york to study under or follow and get closer and spend time with shri chinmoy that's a great question. I, 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 even though I grew up in the East Bay, I was in a really conservative suburb um, that bordered the black, then the blackest zip code in the country, East Oakland. 
But my elementary school, for example, out of 800 people had four kids of color. And as a kid, you don't really care. And if I was out in the middle of nowhere, that difference wouldn't have meant anything to me. But I was literally two blocks away from, you know, again, 100% African-American enrollment schools. And so by the time, like, my cohort got to high school, you know, we all felt white and white and black and brown. We all felt something was wrong. Like this wasn't really real. And my high school was one of the first in the country, you know, congratulations, San Leandro High School, to have race riots in the in the early 90s. You know, so it's like it was really stark that the world we were living in was not necessarily reflective of, of greater humanity. So I, I kind of I went to Cal with with a, a, a deep sense of like skepticism, with a deep sense of like like curiosity, and at the same time, like school did not fulfill that curiosity. No matter how many classes I took, you know, whether they were humanities or science classes, nothing was kind of like like answering or 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 dispelling the notion that I could very well be screwed. You know, humanity could be screwed by the time like. I figure out my place in the world. I, I again at, at, at University of, of California Berkeley, every single spiritual group has a base, and Sri Chinmoy's group was was no different. Um, but the difference to me was that, unlike most other groups, with which said that if you want to be really good at meditation, you have to wear a robe and you have to be completely detached from society. You know, yeah, people come to the meditation centers on weekends, but it's like the monks look down on them. They're kind of not the same level and you got to give it all up. And that also didn't really feel right to me. And his philosophy appealed to me because it was a combination. He said that in this day and age, again, this isn't a criticism on any other path, but he said in this day and age, you know, you, you kind of have to look at the divine both within yourself and in humanity. And it, it was kind of like foreshadowing to our ultra connected, you know, age right now. He said, you know, from the early '60s, he said, "There's, there's not a single cave in the world you could go to where you ultimately won't be discovered by someone, and vice versa, won't still be forced to have a connection with with the world, like maybe you could do 500 years ago." So the philosophy, in a nutshell, was like live in the world realize that you know the highest in you is the highest in everyone and so that that was a path for me that was a, a path that i could understand that was a path that wouldn't require me to make the hard decision of like quitting school and shaving my head and wearing a robe and living in the forest which again had it had its appeal and after i graduated from university you know the prospects ahead of me were just grad school but i said like you know why don't i go to like effectively an inner grad school and just go literally sit at the feet of this spiritual master and um, and let that be my process of discovery. Rather than scientific discovery, hopefully it'll be self-discovery. And when you were at Berkeley, were you formally on that pre-med track? Is that what you were studying there? Yeah. You know, I, I was, I was 4.0, you know, in one of the most competitive pre-med programs in the country. And as soon as I really realized that that wasn't going to be my, my path, and as soon as I felt a deeper sense of fulfillment from Sri Chinmoy's path, which I joined as, as a sophomore, my poor parents, like all my grades went down the hill. <laughs> uh, disappointing the folks. Yeah, for, for, the, for the Asian listeners out there, like all I have to say is that both my parents have PhDs. They were raised in villages and education got them everything. And so despite the fact that they come from India and Sri Chinmoy comes from India, it was, it was initially really difficult to stomach the fact that their kid had no outer aspirations whatsoever. That's rebellion. You know, in in a, in a sense, I, 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 I realized that later. It's like I, I looked at what I was supposed to do, both as an American, both as a, an Indian, and I just said, like, screw it all. Like, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, and that's it. And and I look back and I go, like, God, I wish I was as bold now <laughs> as I was when I was 19, like, 
good on young Sanjay. That guy was like a hero. Like now I'm not like that. Interesting. That's really interesting. I, I'm I'm tempted to not believe you. I mean, to, to, to be honest, like when, when I started the idea for, for 3100 Run and Become, I was telling people like, you know, of course I've got access to the 3100. It was founded by Sri Chinmoy and I live right next to it. But there's going to be an indigenous angle. There's gonna, we're going to film with the Taharamara or the Navajo or the Hopi. We're going to go to the Kalahari with the Bushmen. And I know that nobody's been allowed to film up with the Japanese marathon monks for 40 years. But, you know, we're going to do that and it's all going to work. And 99% of the people I pitched it to were just like, I don't see it. And I was like, I swear to God, I know it's going to work. And so I guess, I guess in that sense, you know, you know, I, 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 we, we took a leap off a cliff. Yep. Nineteen-year-old Sanjay's not dead. Nineteen-year-old <laughs> Sanjay was a better runner. Forty-four-year-old <laughs> Sanjay's a happier runner. Yeah. Do you? I was going to say that. I've been thinking about a lot about running being this sort of thing that you can, to a point, get better at in different ways throughout life. Um, obviously, there's some physical limitations, but I guess there is no better or worse, right? But a happier runner um, is a good way to put it. But do you, how do you view that evolution in yourself as far as that goes? Because it's going on, what, 30 years now for you? You know, it, it was it was two experiences. It was the, the sixth day that I did in 2015. I, and again, the, the short, and, short and long of it is that after 12 hours, I'd done tons of miles, but I pulled my hamstring. And everything in me, the competitive part of me, wanted to just quit and go home. But there were 75-year-olds in that race. And I kind of felt an obligation. Just I felt a sense of, of like shame and like the fact that they were out there just hobbling around and they were enjoying it. Like They loved the idea that according to their present-day capacity, they were pushing their limits. And I realized that I wasn't pushing my limits, even though I was I was hobbled, I, I I could still walk. I wasn't, you know, in a wheelchair and that I should just reframe my entire set of expectations. That said, when we began to film with the Navajo in Arizona and went to some early races, um like at high altitude with tons of elevation gain. Like the 10Ks were, were being won in 36 minutes by people that could run sub 30 on a track. Like it was intense, but there were 75, 80 year olds doing them in jeans. And this was what our main character, Sean Martin, who is the race director of the Canyon de Chez 55K race, um, he said right away that running is three things for the Navajo. And this kind of crosses a lot of indigenous. Um, uh, traditions as well. Like running is a teacher. Running teaches you about yourself. It teaches you about life. So running is also a celebration. It's a chance to like get a sense of community spirit, to run with people young and old, all knowing that you're pushing your own relative limits. And the most important thing for me to hear was that running is a prayer. He said, when your feet are on mother earth, you're praying, you're breathing in Father Sky, you're praying to the holy people, you're asking them for their blessings to become the person that they want you to be. And that's when I was just like, I get it. I, that was a spirit at the six-day race. And I saw that with, in, the, in these Navajo races. And that's when I said, like, who am I running for? Am I running because my teacher advocated it or would my teacher be happier, or is a real lesson from my teacher understanding my own per personal relationship to running? And it's obviously the latter. Um, obedience is, is good as a first step, but it's like you have to end up loving what you're doing. And I saw that when I was going on morning runs with Sean, I would wait a few minutes for my, my crappy GPS watch to like, tag on to the one satellite that was passing overhead. And in my mind, even before I was out the door, my run was done. It was like, we're going to run seven miles and I'm going to run it at 7.30 pace. So that's like 52 and a half or 52 minutes and you know change and we'll be back and then I'm going to stretch. 
And when I looked at Sean, I realized that Sean was entering into it like it was a meditation. Like if, if anybody you know has, has had any experience with yoga or meditation or breathing exercises, you're not thinking about like, oh, it's, it's three minutes into the class. I've got 47 minutes to go. It's four minutes. I've got like 46 minutes to go. You're not thinking that when you're doing these meditative activities. Like, why am I thinking that when I'm running? And that totally changed my frame of reference. Like when I when I was next to somebody who was doing it right. This is bumping us back for a minute, but it strikes me as really important. I'm certain you're not the only person who has this experience of, you know, you were a competitive runner in high school and then found yourself just burning out on this environment. Have you spent time thinking about like, here is how we could be doing a better job in the United States and perhaps globally in terms of like growing people in this activity of running and not burning them out on the competitive aspect of it. I, I, I think there's, there's, there's two parts to that. Like if you look at hashtag running culture, especially in urban cities where there's just been this resurgence of like local run teams that are so incredibly encouraging and if you look at indigenous running cultures, particularly ones that have kind of overcome a certain level of historical trauma and haven't lost their running practices, those are mainly in the Southwest, like in the Pueblos, um, in, in the Navajo, the Hopi, some Apache, some Ute Mountain Ute in Colorado. You look back at them and imagine as a high schooler in any sport, if your coach and, and Sean, our character in, in, in the movie, is a running coach. If he said to you, like, you know, pens out, you know, paper out, like, what are the three reasons why we run? Like, number one, running is a teacher. Number two, running is a celebration. Number three, running is a prayer. If I had heard that as a kid, it would have blown my mind. And that's that's one reason why, like, in Arizona, the, the team that wins year in and year out, and um, I think Division II cross-country championships, are the Hopi. It's like you can say technically they're running at 6,500, 7,000 feet, but for the Hopi, it's like running is about finding joy through exertion. It, for me, it was all about exertion, but for them, it's like you, you find joy through exertion. You push yourself to your limit, but it's like you do so in a way that you're constantly finding a different level of bliss. And, and to me, that's the formula that Sri Chinmoy had, like, Finding joy through exertion is the formula for self-transcendence. It's the, the formula for going beyond whatever barriers you might have placed around your running, whether they're time, whether it's attitude, whether it's result. I've had experiences in, in high school with uh, sports as well, where it's there isn't that much joy unless you win. And I wonder what it would be like if we just played. But it seems like that would be good. It, it, it's interesting because uh, you know, as as part of of, of the the movie, um, we spend time in the Kalahari with Bushman, and you know, Botswana is it, we we look at it as being homogeneous, but it's it's made up of a number of different tribes, and there's kind of like a colonized, educated group, um, all you know, black skin color, colonized, educated group that is still persecuting uh, people that are in tribes, namely the Bushmen. That, that said, it's like the kind of Botswanan culture has produced some of the best 400 and 800 meter runners in the world in the last 15 or 20 years. The Bushmen themselves are preternatural runners. And our main character, who was a hunter, literally like would chase game down on foot. We went on multi-day persistence hunts with them and and film those, and I think it's you know it's a, it's a fascinating thing to see. They don't practice running. It, it's it's like the joke, and I don't mean to like dish on this community, but it's just it's just the, the joke like about CrossFit. Like, why would I, you know, exercise to get better at exercise? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that guy Kenny from Eastbound yep. and Down <laughs> yep. said that. So so the Bushmen have that idea about running, like why am I going to like run to get, why am I going to practice running to get better at running? Like, that's dumb. Like I'm going to go hunting. Like there is going to be a purpose. And you know, their quote unquote runs are like 
48 hour, 50, 60 mile slogs through the savannah um, chasing game and then like carrying those 2,000 pounds of meat back to their villages traditionally. And that you would understand would probably exhaust you for a couple of weeks. And so running with a purpose is how you learn to get better at running. And that's the way they've looked at it for now 125,000 years. And, you know, that I think also changed the way I look at running. It's like, you can't just run with like a goal that's six months from now. You know, you, you know, you, you like, why are you going and doing this particular run today? Like, yeah, you, you might, and I, I, I use Strava, I've got the GPS watch, but like, why are you going out and doing it? Like, can you develop a goal that's going to last you for an hour? And can you reach that goal and get joy out of that micro experience of self-transcendence? In, in 3100, you, as you've just said, you do show a bit of this story of the sand bushman and a part of it that we hear, but we don't hear too much about it in the film is that this persistence hunting that has been a tradition of theirs has been made illegal. Can you say a bit more about the forces at work there and why this was made illegal? Well, what's happening right now in Botswana is what happened in, in North America you know, 150 years ago, where uh, a Western-educated colonizing class is attempting to grab excessive resources that just happened to be on the land of the indigenous people. And the Kalahari Desert is one of the most foreboding places on the planet. I think it rains like 0.2 inches a year, if that. And that's only because it, it like one time in the last 10 years, it rained like two inches. Um, so uh, the Westerners and educated uh, capitalist folks have always left the Bushmen alone. Until about 20 years ago, when a company discovered that under this landmass the size of Massachusetts, uh, where 5,000 hunters and gatherers still practiced a lifestyle that goes back 125,000 years, there were vast reserves of copper. And so the government made the same type of excuse that, that you know, American governments have, saying like, well, it's in the Bushmen's best interest to have a Western education and to assimilate. And to do that, we need to move them off their ancestral land. Of course, the Bushmen didn't buy that. And so what the government did was they went and poured cement into the five or six boreholes that had provided water to the Bushmen for tens of thousands of years. Um, in, in the U.S., it was, it was like dis the destruction of 60 million buffalo in the span of 20 years to be able to subjugate the one set of indigenous people that the U.S. Army couldn't beat, the Lakota, the Dakota, the Plains Indians. Um, so there's always this idea of like asymmetrical warfare. You can win a war by like burning fields. You can win a war by capping boreholes. And so that forced these hunters and gatherers to live in small resettlement camps that were in the middle of nowhere that made them dependent on unnatural, unhealthy rations. The same thing that happened here to Native Americans, you know, sugar, salt, fat, flour, oil, um, uh, soda pop, candy, these types of things are supplied by the government to provide the caloric intake for the Bushmen. So it, it essentially, you know, the Bushmen's way of life has been destroyed. That said, we spent time with a small group of Bushmen that were still living um, in the Kalahari um, and practicing persistence hunting. The government has made it illegal to practice hunting as a way, again, to assimilate and to force Bushmen off the Kalahari. Like if you destroy their ability to get food, then you're going to get them to be dependent. And the penalty for being caught hunting is to be shot on sight. So you know, our, our, our crew, like there was some, there was some risk and our, our Bushmen undertook a lot of risk in, incredibly consciously, but they said like, we're all going to die of something or other. And I'd rather die being who I am. And that said, it's like they said, if this film just goes up on YouTube, we're screwed. But if it goes out in theaters and gets, you know, discussed on the most illustrious podcasts in the West, <laughs> like this one, you know, then no one's going to bother us. So we, we, we did go on a hunt and I saw 
probably the best runner. And, you know, I've spent time with folks like Carl Lewis. I spent time with some of the best modern marathoners. But the Bushman Hunter that we were with was by far the runner with the most natural ability that I have ever seen in person or on TV. So is there a bit of an update? The, the film is released last fall. Is there any happier tale that we can tell at this point or sadder tale? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's de- definitely a happy tale. You know, because of, of the small groundswell of, of, of support that's come from the movie, we were actually able to buy the, our, 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 our Bushman characters a used Toyota Land Cruiser. And why that's important is because now for the first time, they can drive around the Kalahari to the small numbers of Bushmen that are still living there, and they've registered them all to vote. Um, and so now the Bushmen expect to have some representation at the national level. We were also able to raise money for them to install a few wells, uh, solar-powered wells um, that they could use in place of those boreholes. Um, so the awareness has given them a platform to not be screwed with anymore, and it's given them a couple of tools that they'd been hoping for uh, for you know a few years now. So little small things, and you know for the gearheads out there, it's like. I had to make sure that everybody knew that it was a used Land Cruiser, um, <laughs> but the Bushmen are, Bushmen are still happy with it. <laughs> That's remarkable. Sanjay, let me actually back up for a second then, and I'd love to hear how you describe the film that we've kind of been talking about in bits and pieces here, but how do you describe the film 3100? The, the, the film, it, it, it follows a diminutive paperboy named Ashprihanal Alto from Finland, who has raced more than 53,000 miles on the streets of New York. He's done the, th- the 3,100 13 times already. And in the summer of 2016, he set out to do the race uh, a record 14 times. And we follow his foray back to New York to what's known as the world's longest running race that requires people to run at least 59 miles a day um, in the 52-day window around a half-mile sidewalk loop in the summer heat of New York City, specifically Queens, consuming more than 12,000 calories a day, which you know is just an ungodly amount. It's like 150 eggs. That's the equivalent. <laughs> and push themselves for no prize money, for no real recognition. You know, the Barclays Marathon obviously was was held in obscurity until a few films. And the 3100s, no, no different. There's been articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post, et cetera. Um, but, you know, if we were just going to make a movie about people running around a block, it would have been the most boring movie in the world. And I really wanted to give people some insight into how and why these distances are possible, that it's literally baked into us as human beings, but more importantly than the kind of more recent books about like, how we are all like made to run long distances. The, we, I, I wanted to really go into the heart of running, that it was essentially humanity's first religion, that there are forces at play when you run that connect you to nature in a way that can't be experienced in any other sport. And those traditions are still practiced by a small handful of groups around the world. Um, Native Americans, particularly those in the Southwest, um, a rapidly you know, diminishing number of Bushmen in the Kalahari, and these monks in the highlands of Japan that pick one aspirant every 10 years to do about 21,000 miles of trekking. Each day has a set amount that differs um, you know, every 100, 200 days or so. And if those monks don't hit that daily amount, they have to kill themselves. Um, so at the same time, they're not running with fear. They're running with bliss. And the goal there is enlightenment. And so the movie, in a sense, through the 3,100-mile race, explores the idea of achieving a sense of spiritual satisfaction through pushing yourself to unnatural distances. What's covered in the film is very, I would say, extreme outliers in the running world. Not historically, as you pointed out, but nowadays, if you tell people on an airplane that you're going to go run a six day race or a 3,100 mile race, they look at you like you have three heads because it's so far outside of what we do. 
but do you think the film or have you heard that the film has inspired someone to sign up for a 5k or a 10k or something like that and made them want to run but a much smaller a much more quote-unquote normal distance i i found two things i i found that it's it's really helped the families of ultra distance runners yeah. to, to know why they're like sons or daughters or daughter-in-laws or like spending weekends out in the desert running to the point of exhaustion. Um, number two, I, I found that it's like, everybody who's run, even people who hate it, everybody who's run has had a moment in their running career where they were just so incredibly happy when they were running or where they were running. And the, the, I think the underlying feeling of the film is to let people know that that's a feeling that can be expanded. And it's something that we can work on to try to imbue into each and every run that we do. It's the idea that if we look at running as a tool to become better people, every single run that we do is, is, is a step toward that goal. If you look at running as a way to like find ultimate happiness, each run will take you one step closer. And I've had, we've had a lot of feedback from people who say like, I'm beginning to enjoy my running more. You know, it's like, I love having goals. I love racing, but I'm realizing that, you know, I can get a lot more out of the moments. In terms of I, our, our native characters, there's an organization called Wings of America, which promotes native running all around the Southwest. And they're, they're hugely, you know, wary of, you know, appropriation of native customs and cultures. And they've told me if like non-natives want to copy us in any way, shape or form, like rather than wearing headdresses at Burning Man, we'd just like them to, you know, look at the way we run and look at our relationship to running. Because that's one thing that we're way better at than anybody else. Yeah, it's. I, I mean, I feel like it's a cultural thing to that all sports are. You know, the point is to win, and a lot of sports that we do when we're younger don't carry over past age eighteen for a lot of people. And running, it seems, you can evolve your view of what it is, um, which is sort of the way you've done it in life, where it becomes a completely different thing than it was. 20 years ago or, or when you were, when you were 15, 16. I, I, th I think there's a, there's a handful of sports that are like that, right? Like, like a, a lot of snow sports are like that. Ocean sports are like that. Um, the, these things that where, where you're literally in those cases relying on, you know, your, your appendages and your appendages alone make, make for a different relationship with nature and with that sport. I think the idea that really this is so pedestrian, but it blew my mind was when our, our main character, Sean, his, his dad, um, Alan, who's a medicine man on the Navajo reservation and also kind of like a keeper of, of the spiritual aspects of running, which they revealed to us on camera at their own discretion and said that those types of those aspects of Navajo running had never, ever been revealed to the public. So there's a, there's a lot in the film. Um, but, but he told me, he said, look, Mother Earth is the asphalt too. So it doesn't matter if you're running like, you know, up in, in, in the mountains of Colorado or on the sidewalks of New York City. You know, the oxygen is the same. You're running on the ground and you can have this spiritual experience of like praying to Mother Earth with your feet and breathing in Father Sky no matter where you are doing this activity. There are so many different terms that we are using in this conversation and in the film. We are talking about running as meditation. We are talking about running as prayer. You are talking about running can become a source or a catalyst of bliss. And I'm really interested in how sort of um, in a brass tacks way, how is running supposed to make me a better person? That's the crux of it. You know, it, it's, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like a Zen monk. It's like, it, it makes you a better person if you want it to, you know? So it's, it, it's like, if, if, 
if you're eat, are you are you eating food for enjoyment or are you eating for calories? You know, if you're eating for enjoyment, you're going to enjoy it. You know, that if that's your goal in running, that's what you're going to get out of it. You know, running helps us in so many ways. Like running helps us escape. Running literally helps us run away from stuff that are chasing us. Running helps us forget. You know, running helps us compete. Running helps us, you know, get out aggression, explore our aggression in a very kind of like self-aware way. Um, Running also can make you feel intense pain, you know, if you wanted to. And, you know, everybody runs for completely different reasons. I think the, the, the idea that you're hinting at is being self-aware when you run and understanding whether you're a professional or whether you're an amateur, whether you're running to win and pulverize anybody else. Um, by having a, a deeper sense of self-awareness of what your goals are, of what you want to do at each and every moment and what you want to get out of running, running oddly will give you that. And it's, it's, it's unique in my experience in, in that sense. The, the idea for me is longevity. I'm, I'm, I've never been good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be good enough to be able to go out and just crush people. And, you know, there's plenty of pros that don't want running to become, make them a better person. They want running to win. And God, we all know that like when you run to win and you win, it's, it's like one of the best experiences you could have. But when you lose, if that's your focus, it's also one of the worst experiences you can have. So for those of us who aren't running at that level, can't get that taste of like that nectar at the, at, at the goal, you know, it's like, why are we running? You know, and, and in my case, it's, it was like, I would have stopped running, you know, at the age of 20, if I hadn't, you know, begun following Sri Chinmoy and at least understood that there was another reason to run. But it wasn't until I really started making this film that that reason became a part of my life and that I look at running now as something I actually want to do. And so in, in that sense, it's like, you know, why do I want to do it? I, I want to do it because it's like, it's actually making me feel better about myself. And the more, the better attitude I have towards myself, it's like the better attitude I'm going to have towards my life and towards my loved ones and to my friends. So that's just a, like a dissection of, at least in my, in, in my own experience, like what it means to become a better person. Are there days now where you have a hard time getting out the door? And what do you do when that sort of thing happens? I, I just personally remind myself that basically the person I want to be would actually go do the running instead of, you know, sitting down eating more chips and answering emails. And you'll be a better person if you go do six miles or four or eight or whatever it is in a small way. Do you have those moments and what do you, or days and what do you actually do to counter that? I I have them all the time. And I, because it's like, I, I live in New York city and I, I don't have, trails right near me it's like i've got to leave most of the time i've got to leave my house and like run on sidewalk and run through traffic so it's really easy to look outside especially in the winter and go like i'm actually a good enough person as it is (laughs) (laughs) that's really easy but but i i've 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 found that and i think this is this is really good advice for 44 year old sanjay that I'm going to enjoy running if I have fewer problems. You know, if there's fewer injuries, if there's fewer snags, if the running is freer and smoother. And that's like, that's gotten me to really, you know, work on my flexibility, on my mobility, on my diet, really, for the first time in 15 or 20 years to really focus on what I need to do in my outer life to make those runs more fun. And, and for me, it's like more fun means like no old man problems. Um, and so, so in a sense, it's like, you know, again, for the first time since I was a teenager, I've, I've, I've been forced to like look at running as something incredibly important to me and begun, beginning to like reorient my lifestyle around getting as much as I can out of it. Hmm. Speaking of making it more fun, have you ever tried running to a bakery and then taking an Uber back? Because that's <laughs> what well, 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 so, so like, like the best, the best aspect of running 
in New York City, particularly if you're training for multi-days or ultras, is like, you know, I, I, when I was training for the six-day race, I had to do 27, 30 milers um, at least once a weekend, sometimes twice a weekend. And I had this route where at mile seven, I was at an artisanal donut shop. At mile 12, I was at a smoothie bar. At mile 20, I was at a ramen shop in Brooklyn. At mile 25, I was at an old time milkshake shop. And all I brought was my credit card. And it's like, on the days when I felt crappy, I'd go like, in seven miles, I will be able to have like a chocolate maple donut and I will oh. no longer feel crappy. God. Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's the greatest thing in the world. It's like, as long as you're not counting your calories and, you know, as, as you guys know, for, for, for ultra distance running and for multi-day running, you have to train yourself to eat on the run. It's like, you're not going to be eating gels on the fifth day of a multi-day. You just, you have to eat food. So... I would just, I mean, I, that, that was why I, I felt so shamed by our pizza marathon. Like I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a really good, like running eater. And, uh, by that fifth slice at mile 20 or so, like I, I, w- I was not feeling it. I, and it was shame more than indigestion. I, I don't think any, and I don't think anyone was feeling it at that point, but that's a, that's a good point. You know, like you you were essentially, you can create training runs for yourself and you are basically in the middle of the most aid stations per capita in America. Um, if you count donut shops and all the food that's available in New York. And as we all know, if you, if you have your phone with you and you've got the Starbucks app, it's like, you've got basically a public bathroom app yes. right with yes. you. Um, like in, in that sense, it's like, I look at New York city, you know, with a hat tip to Boulder as like one of the greatest running cities in the world. You know, it's like if you want to get if you if you want to run in New York City, you're going to end up like getting really good at it. You're going to end up like developing a real sense of community here because there's so few people that do it. You know, you're going to learn more about yourself because it's way harder to get out the door, way harder to get your goals. And you've got all the perks. Like after I do my my weekend long runs, it's like I go and I eat forty five or fifty dollars of Italian food. <laughs> Like that's the day when I'm going to go have the risotto and the tiramisu, you know, and, and the whole nine yards and just like live like a, a pig. Sanjay, what's the best question that we haven't asked you yet? Ooh, that, that's a really, really good one. Like the question is like, who do you think you are going on all these, you know, shows <laughs> and podcasts talking about running? Really? Because it, it, it's like, I'm like, I'm not Meb Keflisky, you know, I'm not Dina Castor, I'm not Stephanie Bruce. But the, the interesting thing is that like, with this movie, I've got to spend some time with some of like, some of the best runners, you know, in, in the United States. I like I, Scott Fobble, who's a 212 or so marathoner who runs for Hoka and Northern Arizona elite. I mean, he meditates. Kate Grace, you know, at 2016, 800 meter Olympian, you know, it was, it was really quite startling. Like we were doing a panel together in, in Portland where the Bowerman Track Club trains. And she was telling me on stage and she was telling everybody that she said, I, she framed it as like, I don't know if I'm really spiritual when I run, but when I do an 800 meter race, I try to imagine at the beginning of the race that there's a tiny little like candle flame in my heart. And as the race progresses, you know, the, the flame grows bigger and bigger and bigger until with about 100 meters to go, it's the size of the sun and then it bursts. And we were all like, you've just described like the highest spiritual experience that like 800 saints across 2 million years have experienced. Like that idea of like using inner strength and translating it into outer power is one of the most exceptional things that like running can show a human being. So I've, I've spent time with great runners who might not like, and Scott, Scott doesn't meditate in a, in a, in a religious sense, but there are a number of pro runners that realize that like everyone's got the same type of like focus on edge. Everyone's got the great footwear. They've 
They're training at altitude. They have great nutrition. They're doing all the right body work now. Everybody knows what to do. But there's an edge that hasn't really been explored or captured by the most pros. And, and that's like looking within yourself and really understanding how to harness determination, how to harness every good experience you've had in your life, and to literally convert that into outer power. And that's, that's the, the message of, of the movie, 3100 Run and Become. You know, all of the runners in the movie are, are rank amateurs, but they're getting to a place within themselves where they're churning out capacity to run 60, 70 miles a day for 3,100 miles. And that doesn't come from genetics. It's not coming from nutrition. It's not coming from the top coaching. It's coming from an understanding that there's a deep well of resources within ourselves. If we can learn to, if we can learn to tap into that, and use it however we want to in whatever endeavor we want to. It's going to make us better at what we're trying to do. That was, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. Sanjay, what's next for you? What's on the horizon for you? I am making a, a narrative, a, a fictional movie about my, my running coach now, who um, between 1977 and 1983 held almost every American record between the 10K and the marathon. She was the first marathoner under 230 as a female. Um, and she started off in 1976, in her words, as an overweight, two-pack-a-day, chain-smoking, 22-year-old nurse in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, somehow fell into a group of joggers and surprised herself and everyone else by running her first marathon in 253. Um, she's Native American and ended up becoming Nike's first sponsored athlete. Her name was Patty Catalano. It's now Patty Dillon. But because she existed in an era where people weren't really paid, uh, where there wasn't even, I don't think there was even a 3,000 meter medal event in the 1980 Olympics. It wasn't until 1984 where there was a 10,000 meter and a marathon and a 5,000 meter event. Like Women were, were seen as like damaging their birthing systems if they ran, um, which we obviously know is ridiculous. But Patty was one of the early pioneers. And, you know, she's a name that's been relegated to history. But her story of trials and tribulation and an ultimate triumph and looking at the power of sheer will and determination to overcome every inner and outer barrier, I think is something that will really captivate people's uh, interest. You're working on this now, or you're early in the process, middle, near the end of this process? We're, we're, we're writing the script right now, and then you know, hoping in a month that that'll be, that'll be done. And uh, you know, we've got ideas for who we want to play her and, and other characters. And I, I think it's going to be exceptional, not just for, for young girls who are running, but for people who don't consider themselves runners. Um, again, she was, in her words, overweight, chain smoking, drank all night long, and running didn't just like revolutionize like her physical appearance and her physical capacity, but running broke her out of a cycle of historical trauma that you know she faced as as a native, as a woman, um, as a working class person in uh, in the Northeast. So I, I, I found I found her story exceptional and we realized that like god it's going to be way better as a fictional movie than as a documentary because i mean imagine the 70s like the hair and the short shorts and like the tank tops and the music and you know the the waffle shoes and just the free spirit that people had to run and push themselves and and the joy and there was no gear you know in those days the pro runners weren't being paid and they were stealing all the extra yogurts and, and oranges at the end of races because that was their calories for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah, different, different era, different era. And it's, it's like it's teaching me so much about the roots of American running and how, how exceptional like those pioneers actually were. That's fantastic. Sanjay, thanks so much for doing this. This was very, this is, this is exactly what I expected, uh, which is wonderful. I mean, I've, I've been looking forward to this with giddiness for like a week and, you know, like when's Brendan going to come home from 
Norway. Like, this is going to be so much fun. And it was. It, it really was. So thank you. Sanjay, seriously, just a true pleasure. And uh, we're going to clearly encourage everyone, if you, if you haven't figured this out by now, please go see 3100 Run and Become. It is weird. It is remarkable. It is breathtaking at certain moments. And Sanjay, I mean, first and foremost, I thank you for putting that film together. And, and secondly, thank you for this conversation. This really has been a pleasure. And I can't wait for your next project. Um, so again, thank you for the time. Oh, it, it was my pleasure. And lastly, the 3100 starts this year on June 16th um, in Jamaica Hills, Queens. People go to our Instagram at 3100film. They'll see the geotag. But Jonathan, Brendan, I really hope you guys find yourself out east in the summer. Please come by and we'll have like a two-hour picnic of like Sri Lankan food or Colombian food Mm. and watch people with blisters on every inch of their feet. (laughs) (laughs) I may be taking you up on that. Yeah. Please do. Please do. I, I mean that with all sincerity. Like we will have a great time stuffing ourselves and watching people suffer. Sanjay, thank you so much. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again very soon. Awesome. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Sanjay Rawal for the excellent conversation. And you can check out his film 3100 Run and Become on iTunes or on Amazon.com. Thanks also to my co-host Brendan Leonard and to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And if you like what you are hearing so far from our young new podcast, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes or share this episode with your friends or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think so far. Until next time, keep moving forward and we will talk to you again very soon.